Okay, so let's go again. Hello again, and welcome back to the Crash Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Termazai, consultant radiologist in Norwich and the Royal College of Radiologists 2020 Redken Professor. If you're finding us for the first time, great to have you with us. And here's a quick rundown of what's been going on so far. The Crash Podcast started in autumn last year and has been all about clinical radiology academics speaking honestly as we talk with inspirational radiologists from across the UK who are in some way involved in academic radiology and research. I hope you've all been keeping well in the recent months since we put out our last episode in December. Quite a lot has changed in the world since then. And with the new year came lots of new challenges for us all. And not least for our guest today, who takes over the baton of the Röntgen Professorship for 2021. So without further ado, it's a huge pleasure to introduce Joe Jacob, the Wellcome Trust Clinical Research Career Development Fellow at the Centre for Medical Image Computing, University College London, Honorary Consultant Radiologist at University College London Hospital, and of course, the 2021 Royal College of Radiologists Röntgen Professor. Welcome, Joe. Thank you very much, Tom. That's a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> it was a long introduction, but, you know, worth it. Very much worth it. Well, lovely. Thank you very much for inviting me on the podcast. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, first of all, Joe, massive congratulations on the award. We're going to talk plenty about what you hope to do in the next year in a moment. So why don't you start by giving us a bit of an introduction about yourself, telling us about your background and how you came to be where you are today? Okay. I went to Imperial Medical School and qualified a long, long time ago. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do in terms of medicine. So I started off with a surgical rotation, then did the medical rotation, still wasn't sure where to name any for a while, and then basically applied to radiology. And it was a time called MTAS where the medical training system was changing and a lot of people were able to apply to radiology straight after their house jobs. And whereas this, Previously, you had to have done some SHO years or done your MRCS or your MRCP before you applied. Suddenly, there was a huge glut of radiologists or prospective radiologists applying to radiology. And I applied that year. And what happened to me was my basic life support certificate was out of date. And I wrote that on my form. And that was essential criteria to qualify to, you know, be shortlisted for an interview. But I wasn't shortlisted that year. And I suddenly found myself with a year of life before I could apply again, because at that time I knew I wanted to do radiology. And I thought, what am I gonna do in this year? And I'd always wanted to work abroad and it's kind of serendipity. I thought, okay, I wanna work abroad in the developing world. What do I need to do? A tropical medicine diploma. There's only two places in the UK that do them, London and Liverpool. Mm. I rode to Liverpool and they had someone drop out that day for a course that was starting in four days time. So I thought, okay, you know, life has given me this year. It's a bit of a disappointment because I want to do radiology, but let's turn it into an opportunity. So I drove up to Liverpool, did the DTMNH, the Diploma in Tropical Medicine and Hygiene, had a great time. And then one thing leads to another, right? At that course, you get uh, NGOs, non-governmental organizations coming and looking to see if you would work for them. So Doctors Without Borders, uh, Medicine Sans Frontier, they came and canvassed us. And I thought, yeah, you know what? That's a really amazing organization. I'd like to work for them. So then I ended up working in a conflict zone in Darfur in Sudan uh, for eight months. And I mean, I can tell you some stories about that later, but that was a mm -hmm. baptism of fire. But in the middle of all of that, I still wanted to do radiology. I mean, it was the calling I realized I wanted to pursue because I had, you know, the kind of, 
questions and diagnostic conundrums of medicine with the technical uh, dexterity you need in surgery. It was the kind of perfect amalgam. So then I took, and this is not a joke, I took a donkey cart, a taxi, a helicopter, three planes and about five minicabs to my interview at the Royal College of Radiologists. <laughs> and I was on the waiting list <laughs> to get a post. Luckily, someone dropped out and then I got into radiology. So I trained at King's uh, College London uh, in the hospital and did my radiology training there. But after one year, I realized that I still had a bit of MSF, Medicine San Frontier, in my blood. So the scheme were fantastic. They let me take a year out in UP. And then I went and worked in three different projects with MSF in India, came back to radiology. And at that point, realized that I had to decide the more developing work I did in those kinds of environments, the less my radiology was, you know, I was falling back in radiology. And then if I did radiology, I was falling back in my tropical medicine knowledge. So I decided at that point, I'm going to stick with radiology, finished my training, uh, took another year out to do specialization in New Zealand with an excellent radiologist there, and then applied for a MD at Imperial under someone called Professor David Hansel, who was just the most incredible radiologist and did research on computer analysis of chest CT imaging. Uh, that was a collaboration with the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And from there, I then got a bit lost because it's not really clear if you wanna pursue an academic career, what the next stage is after you do your degree. And so I can talk a bit about that as well. But what I found out was that you could do something called an intermediate fellowship with the NIHR or the MRC, or in my case, the Wellcome Trust. So it was a very uh, difficult process, very competitive, but luckily the interviews all went well and I got my Wellcome Fellowship to set up my own group doing computer analysis of chest CT imaging at UCL. And that's where I currently work. I do one day a week as a clinical radiologist in the hospital and four days a week with my research team. And yeah, I think it's, definitely what I want to do and what I've needed to do. And what I hope is that that kind of avenue will become more and more apparent to people, because I think if you are interested in research, it is very hard to balance clinical work and research together. You may often feel you're fulfilling neither very well. And the danger I have is, you know, you're doing so little clinical that you can feel out of touch, but at the same time, the academic work can flourish. So yeah, I found my niche and it may not be for everyone, but that's what I'm going to be talking about during the year of the Rhodes Professorship. Fantastic. Thanks so much for the introduction, Joe. There's so much fascinating stuff that I know that we can cover over the course of the episode. So that's brilliant. As usual, right at the start, there is no escape for our guests when it comes to this next part. And that, of course, is the crash test. So if you haven't heard this before, please do go back and listen to previous episodes because probably one of the most fun bits of the podcast where we squeeze some real juice out of our guests. Now, this time it's just Joe. You're going to pick some numbers off the crash test grid. Which would you like first? I will go for number 11. What is guaranteed to make you angry? Rudeness. Directed at you or just in the, in the general ambience? In the general ambience. Life is hard enough. There's always time for courtesy. That was a sticker on my grandmother's cabinet. Yeah. Uh, and it's something that stuck with me. So yeah, general rudeness. I have no time for that. Okay. And next number? 
Six, please. What's the most recent app you've installed on your phone? Oh, uh, Strava, I think. I have to check, I'm afraid. Uh, <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, Strava for running. Mm. Okay, you've been getting back out there, have you? Well, that second lockdown really put the pounds on. And I'm not as young as I used to be, so I'm aching a lot more than I used to. So yeah, I've been running a bit. Got to keep that muscle mass up. That'll get rid of those aches. Yes. Number 16, please. How have you kept your hair during lockdown? I am one of those weird people that have always cut my own hair. Ever since, actually, ever since I worked in R4 <laughs> for Medicine Saint Frontier, where yeah. you have a barber, I cut my own hair. I don't follow football. So having a conversation about football with a hairdresser is actually quite difficult for me. And I mean, I did have one hairdresser who was just fantastic. He could cut your hair and smoke a cigarette at the same time and not get any ash on your hair. But those days are long gone. So I, I cut my own hair and it's always terrible. But <laughs> no, I was going to say for, for the listeners, it's, it's looking quite sharp. And that's in complete um, juxtaposition to my hair that's completely and utterly out of control and my unshaven unkemptness. So oh, you know, know. I like the way you look. <laughs> OK, thanks. All right, let's have the next one. Number four. What is your go to fast food indulgence? Oh, I don't eat meat. So we've discovered uh, meat-free burgers. Uh, where do we get it from? We used to get them from Honest, but now we get it from Shake Shack. Shake Shack burgers. Nice. Okay, next one. Two, please. Okay, so this is the one that everyone gets and you're going to be ranked and judged suitably by this. How many times did you fail your driving test? Oh, never. But I'm a really bad driver. So, <laughs> I don't think that means anything. It's okay. We had Fiona Gilbert uh, telling us about her real life crash experiences. Um, but oh, okay, yeah. so you, you passed first time then? Yes, I did. I did. Okay. And last one you'd like to choose? Number nine. What's the weirdest sport you've ever taken part in? Well, I guess it's not that weird, but uh, what do they call it? Where you, you're playing frisbee and you've got to get from end to end. Ultimate frisbee. Ultimate Frisbee, there you go. Yes, uh, nice. Just because I was terrible at it. Great, well, thanks very much for doing the crash test, Joe. <laughs> Lovely. Well, I have some questions for you as well, Tom. So we're turning the tables today. Your own <laughs> crash test. Okay, can I refuse to do this? No. <laughs> okay. Absolutely not. Okay. All of mine were lockdown themed because we're coming out of this last very painful winter lockdown so please choose a number between one to ten okay all right i'll go for ten to start off with okay what did you miss the most during lockdown i think it was traveling with the family on holiday yes I think that getaway where you really just genuinely can drop everything behind you so yeah i missed that okay next number please Ooh, number three uh -huh. most useless home improvement attempts during lockdown well, thinking about it, then it wasn't quite home improvement as opposed to home destruction. I managed to knock off the top of almost every single banister in the home oh. at the top of the stairs as they yeah. go around. So so I had to glue them back on and that was shoddy. OK, OK, terrible. Uh, next number, please. Number one. Oh, OK. Relates to your previous question. Most anticipated holiday destination after lockdown. Well, we were always hoping to go out to Malaysia to see my wife's family because my daughters have 
great-grandmother out there oh, and wow. yeah we're just dying to go and visit in person so that is definitely something we can't wait to do okay next number uh, seven. Oh, okay this is one that you asked me what was your lockdown hair care solution <laughs> okay so not to cut it or shave <laughs> it um perhaps not wash it much either and also and i'm gonna share the uh, little hair care uh, product secret with you. Um, emollients and skin products, because uh, um, there's a little bit of eczema in the family, work really well on hair. Oh. Well, I think they do anyway. <laughs> I don't think everyone agrees with me, but uh, yeah, I just let it grow. Right. I thought you were going to tell me that the 1990s hair gel that is in the back of your cupboard suddenly made an appearance <laughs> again. What the stuff that's so hard now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to crack it and like rub it and stick it in. Yeah, yeah. and your hair just doesn't move no matter how no. strong the wind. No, no. I mean, I'm thinning, so anything I can also do to try and sort of give it body. Um, so the emollients really work quite well, surprisingly. Interesting. Okay, last number, please. Number five. Okay, best TV series recommend for a future lockdown. Not that we're hoping another one will come, but in case it does, what TV series would you recommend listeners to watch? Oh, I, t I tell you what, I mean, it'll, there'll probably be a new series of this by the time, but The Mandalorian is fantastic. Oh. And I'm a big Star Wars fan, and I'm also a huge Spaghetti Western fan, and I think it's a secret to say that this is Star Wars does Spaghetti Western, so that's pretty cool. Interesting. Okay, I'll have to check that out. I've not seen that. Well, thank you very much. Uh, an excellent crash chest. <sighs> okay, right, right, let's turn the tables back. Okay. let's go back no no of course not let's do this absolutely together because i think we've got so much interesting stuff to talk about let's actually not everyone may know what the Röntgen professor award is so why don't you just give us a quick rundown of what the award entails and what kind of things you you know might be asked to do so essentially it's to try and promote research within the radiology trainee community and what i'll be doing is visiting several sites up to five uh, now virtually normally it's an in-person uh, meeting but because of the way things are there'll be virtual sessions where I'll be doing a lecture uh, talking about things of interest to me which will probably be lung uh, imaging and then also talking to the trainees about how you can try and get into an academic pathway and I mean, there are research projects we'll all be doing during our training, but actually going into it a bit deeper, trying to understand the disease and how imaging is now becoming so integral to identifying disease progression in so many different diseases. And then once you've finished your radiology training, not letting your academic interest stop, but finding a path whereby you have the time and the freedom to explore questions that you may have. So using my experience in going through these intermediate fellowships, for example, uh, after an MD or a PhD, basically making people aware that these things are open to us. I think in many other specialities in medicine, such as, you know, oncology or hematology, cardiology, it's a given that you'll do a PhD and then you apply to an intermediate fellowship. But yes. it's, it's a bit alien to radiology. So I've been speaking to a lot of radiologists who have approached me saying, how do I get into these schemes? And I've basically been talking them through in one-on-one -on -one meetings how we do this because it's so foreign to us. Yeah. And when I applied, you know, I didn't have a single radiologist be able to tell me what to do. I had to speak to amazing respiratory clinicians and computer scientists who guided me into that process. 
but no radiologist who had kind of done, really done it much before and yeah. could tell me the, the pathway. So I hope my experience will be useful to trainees. So, I mean, we're going to be crossing paths, I think, over the next year or two as well through, for example, the academic committee at the Royal College of Radiologists. And part of the, the challenge that I've taken on in the year beyond my professorship visits and this podcast was to try and look at the structure of training for radiologists and how it ties in with the integra integrated academic training for ACFs and why people in radiology aren't necessarily having that opportunity or, or feeling that they can find the time to fit in what leads up to that high degree training, um, if, if that is the path they wish to take, because just like many other people that we've spoken to, and myself, I was doing that higher degree at the end of my training. And we support people, for example, in Norwich to run through the end of their training, um, to do an MD, for example, at the University of East Anglia. So, you know, there's lots to explore. And, you know, I think trying to give trainees a platform in which they can communicate to that, that to you will be really important. So, look, if it's not too much of an obvious question, can I ask why you uh, applied for the Roentgen Professorship? I thought the Roentgen Professorship was just an amazing platform with which to tell people how they could get a pathway into definitive uh, academic work and be leaders in their field. And these intermediate fellowships are really created for that, to create your own research team that can drive novel analysis. And they're not really understood by many people. And I thought visiting these training schemes during the course of the year, I could really explain to people how you can maintain your academic interests in a substantial way as a consultant in the future. Oh, good stuff. Yeah. And in fact, you touched on your own experiences in the introduction. And I think you were funded by the Wellcome Trust, you said. Is that right? Yeah. 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 And, and what's happening right now is that there seems to be a huge overhaul in how charities and funding agencies across the board are funding these particular follow-on fellowships. So I don't think they exist in the form necessarily that, that you undertook in the past. So if people are interested, we, you know, we should direct them to looking out to see what the latest opportunities are, for example, with Wellcome Trust, MRC, NIHR, because it's constantly changing. What do you know of the situation now? Are you, are you aware of what kind of opportunities are available? So for the Wellcome Trust, they've really changed their priorities. Uh, they now are very interested in global warming, mental health uh, and infectious diseases. But having said that, they also have these opportunities for more long term research fellowships. But they're just being announced now. There was a pod, mm. I mean, a, a meeting about it uh, this month. But the details will be on their website or if you subscribe to their newsletter, you'll get more information about it in due course. But they are starting a new fellowship scheme, which I think is going to give you more freedom to answer these questions you're interested in. There are other opportunities, like if you work in cancer, there's Cancer Research UK, which can, uh, you know, have that, which has their own fellowships. And then there are these other schemes, such as the UK RI Future Leaders Fellowship. Yes, I've noticed those. And I think we should, you know, you have to be slightly savvy. In Norwich, we've really brilliantly, someone in the research and development department has decided to send out a weekly email with the rundown of nearly exhaustive opportunities of gaining funding or fellowships. And I'm very much tickled. I need to get myself in gear on these and, and explore them. There's lots of opportunity out there right now. And, uh, and you know, these, these things are never easy to put together. So you have to, I think, dedicate six months of your life to putting together your application, speaking to as many people as you can to refine your ideas, make sure it's all feasible and everything's in place so that your application is as competitive as possible. 
I think a lot of these funding bodies want to fund people like us because they understand the value of imaging and they're not many of us. So they're kind of trying to promote us in that field. Mm. But if we don't apply, then we're never going to get them. So I think it's being made aware of them, just like your organization are, which I think is fantastic. As I mentioned before, part of it is the journey of helping people get to the stage where they're ready to apply. And um, just touching on what you said about taking six months, I remember someone telling me in a similar situation that you probably have to give one day a week a year exclusively just to an application. What would you think about that? Does that seem about right? It all depends on your life circumstance, I think, and whether you can commit that much time to it. The, the forms are actually not as arduous as you would imagine. What's actually harder is getting your idea together and having enough people kind of critique it, break it down, so that you're really refined in what you're asking. And you also need to be competitive. I mean, for all these fellowships, the things they ask are the person, the project, and the place. So you have to be with a reputable institution. Your project has to be worthwhile and potentially you know, changing uh, how we do medicine. And then they look at you as a person. So you also have to have that track record yourself. And that is what the initial degree, the PhD, the MD, and the papers that follow up from that should be kind of getting you to. Let's think about right at the entry point into this, which is what your visits will be all about, trying to help people and have some insight into what that career might involve. You know, people don't like working in an unfamiliar territory, and I suspect that's something of a barrier to trainees getting involved in research. Um, but what do you think that we could do to try and break down those barriers? What kind of approach do you think, you know, will, should we be enticing them with the riches, with the distractions? What kind of approach would you think might work? The best scenarios that I've come across are when you have one person in the department who has a genuine and long-standing interest in research and they have rolling projects that are always continuing it's very hard to take someone on new and in six months from start to finish have something that's publishable and the trouble is a lot of people come to their you know training supervisor saying you know I've got to apply for a job in a few months time is there anything I can do for my CV unfortunately these research projects are never that quick they can take a year or two so if you have someone in your department who is interested in research and has rolling projects that you can drop on on and drop sorry drop off on and start up when someone above you leaves you're definitely going to get continued outputs and yes yes because you're going to be involved with the output of that project even though you've, you've played an integral but not complete part in it and then you also may well be involved in output that comes on from that so i think people should be aware that it doesn't have to be a start to finish involvement that's unachievable often i think in the timescales that are available to trainees i mean I, I found that when you're developing a fellowship application you need a concentrated period of time to really meet all these people and get things together i think going piecemeal one day a week it just doesn't give you the momentum to get things done the, the biggest danger you have is that you say right i just didn't have time to get it in for this round i wait till the next round and another six months of your life have gone by and you know there's a point at which these fellowships also have to fit with your life plans right you yeah get married you get kids you're moving house this fellowship is something that is got to happen in parallel and you have to set yourself hard deadlines and say, I'm applying, I'm applying for this now for this round. And if I don't make it, you know, I've got one round left in me, maybe, but try your best to make it to that round. So I found a concentrated period of six months to put my fellowship together was ideal. And you have to meet some very important people. And sometimes 
they may say, okay, I've got a slot, I can meet you in two months time. That is what you have to live with because you're not important enough for them to meet you sooner. So you've got to, you've got to leave a lot of time to meet the right people, to critique your project, to get it good enough. So and what would you say for the individuals that might think, well, I don't want to go that deep, that far in, but I still really want it to be part of my career. How would you try and engage with them? So I think there's other ways you can go about it. If you're interested in the clinical work and you don't want to sacrifice that for the academia, then there are academic radiologists who always need clinical uh, support. So as an academic, you may not be up to date with the current challenges in your field sometimes. Uh, the, the clinicians see on a day-to-day -day basis, the clinical radiologists. So bringing or working with an academic and supporting them is going to be an incredibly valuable bit of work from, from the academic's point of view. So that's what I think is going to be really useful. And then in that scenario, as a clinical radiologist, you may come up with a problem that needs solving that the academic can then tackle. So it's kind of a conversation that happens in both directions. The academic will get support from the clinician, but the clinician can also drive some of the questions the academic may want to address. So have you, um, to this point, got trainees involved with your research? And um, what kind of things have they done? And you've hinted at the kind of in, you know, getting in on the rolling projects, but what experiences and kind of uh, opportunities have you been involved with for trainees so far? So there are two kind of streams. One is for people that are medical students. And I think UCL has been really good at that. They've now introduced a BSE, an integrated BSE that involves computer programming to kind of develop, I think, the future kind of radiologist who's familiar with computer analysis of imaging. So you learn how to code and then you take on a project during your summer term. And so we've had quite a few uh, medical students come through that most of whom want to become radiologists, which is nice to see. Yeah. And they've done some really interesting work. The other side of the coin is having radiology trainees look at uh, work on some of our projects. And my work is, like I said before, computer analysis of lung CT imaging. So we sometimes need radiologists to score CTs and tell us how much damage there is so that we can train our computer models or compare our computer models to the radiologist score. And that's been invaluable for us. And, you know, there have been some very good publications from trainees at UCL that we've been able to get through uh, doing that kind of work. The other side of what we're trying to do is it's newer, but I think going to be really, really important. And that is that when you get a computer to analyze a CT scan, it can identify features that you didn't know when you looked at the CT visually were important. And then those Features can be very strongly predictive of disease progression or mortality. The trouble is those computer tools are only available to very few people, right? As your average radiologist, you're never gonna be able to get that computer analysis done on your own patients. So what we're trying to do now is identify these computer derived features and teach them or get a visual correlate for those features so that anyone can interpret that CT visually and take those computer learned features and get scores on those CTs. And an example of this is in fibrosing lung disease. The terms we use to describe a CT with fibrosing lung disease haven't changed for about 20 years, right? We still talk about honeycombing, reticulation, mm -hmm. uh, ground glass attenuation, traction bronchiectasis. But these were described on very old fashioned CTs, interspace slices on very poor quality scanners. Now we've got volumetric imaging 
And we may be able to identify three-dimensional features or features in much more detail that we weren't aware were important. So we get the computer to identify these features and then we try and get the radiologist to be able to score them in a similar way to the computer. And then we get a tool that's actually available to everybody. And you don't have to have an expensive bit of kit or software to be able to use those tools. So it's almost taking the learnings from the computer and giving it back to the radiologist. You know, we were so worried before, five years ago, the computers were going to put us out of a job. <laughs> and now I think we're going round to the idea that the computer is actually going to improve our interpretation of the CT. And taking the radiologist out of that loop is going to be very, very difficult. Oh, that sounds awesome. And, and um, this kind of uh, computer programming, computer language learning, I can, if people have some doubts about whether that's for them, I mean, they can always, you know, have a little bit of a taster. And you'd be surprised, so many more people compared to, I think, our age group when they're growing up have learned some kind of computer programming so it's almost like natural and second nature but even then I started doing it at 32 playing with C++ and and, and MATLAB scripting with, with my PhD I mean I loved it and it takes a little bit of time to learn and I think if you know one kind of uh, language you can very easily pick up other languages and it's really great to see that that's almost at the core of the research that you're doing I, I like the sound of that. You underestimate how computer literate the newer generation are. I'm speaking as a, someone in their 40s, but speaking <laughs> in their 20s, you know, I'm, I'm astonished by how familiar they are with all these things. So I think it's a generational change. Well, you've already given us a little hint about the, the real fundamental basis of the research that you do, but why don't you tell us what you're, what's happening right now? So what we're currently working on is in a disease like idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And this is also true for other diseases like cystic fibrosis. On imaging, you collect a whole different range of patients and lump them under this term of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis or cystic fibrosis. And the imaging features can look really different in these patients. And what we're trying to do is see if you can identify unique imaging phenotypes where a certain imaging type has a different disease progression or outcome to a different imaging type. So see if the imaging itself can drive your characterization of different subgroups within IPF or cystic fibrosis. I think this is gonna become more and more important because when we look at these patients and try and identify if their disease is getting worse, we use lung function tests but those lung function tests may be useful in a subset of those patients and not useful in other groups. And yet we tar them all with the same brush. We expect the same pattern of disease progression in all these patients. So we're kind of disenfranchising patients in whom that pattern of disease progression doesn't exist. So and to put it simply, we're just identifying subtypes of these diseases that we group together under these terms of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. I mean, it's, it means you don't know what's caused that pulmonary fibrosis fundamentally, or cystic fibrosis. And the other bit of work we're doing is trying to identify early features of those diseases. So idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis is a disease that happens in older patients, mostly men, mostly smokers. And of course, now in the UK, lung cancer screening has taken on a mass, uh, massively. So older patients who are smokers are being scanned routinely to look for lung cancer. And only 2% of those patients will have lung cancer. The other 98% have got other diseases caused by smoking that they may be you know, suffering from or dying with. 
And so there is the opportunity there, given the scale of lung cancer screening, to look for early features of fibrosis, because even after 20 years of research, we still don't know what early fibrosis looks like on a CT scan. So there is the opportunity to give people like a lung and heart health check as part of lung cancer screening, which could also prove that lung cancer screening is feasible because it's not just about lung cancer. It can give you cardiac information, lung damage information. So it's to look into those. And there's a big study we're running at UCL called the Summit Study, which is scanning uh, 13,000 patients every year for three years to look for lung cancer. And we're analyzing all those CT scans for things like bronchiectasis, emphysema extent, early lung fibrosis, cardiac damage. Uh, yeah, giving them an MOT of their lungs, basically. There's the idea that you can come up with a model of future disease prediction and outcomes you know, in terms of what the patient will then go on to potentially experience? Yeah, well, I think if you have that number of patients uh, that you're scanning, you may be able to understand what is normal for a patient at that age and gender, and then see how far away from a normal disease progression each patient has, uh, given their smoking burden. So I think those are the kinds of questions that everyone is trying to look at now. So the irony is not lost on me that as a thoracic imaging specialist, you find yourself in demand these days. <laughs> yeah, well. I mean, and I know that you've been reaching out, is it through the British um, Society of Thoracic Imaging to build an enormous database of um, COVID appearances in clinical scans. And I know Norwich, um, we've been contributing, one of my colleagues, John Curtin, has um, had been spearheading that. How has COVID-19 impacted on your research streams and presumably you've adopted new ones throughout this it's affected things massively so as with most academic work you're fully engaged in all your projects so that you don't really have much time to spare and then covid comes along which is a lung disease and suddenly it takes over so much of your life and yet you have to keep those other bits of work continuing so that's a real juggling act that i have not yet mastered <laughs> but what was great about COVID was that in the beginning, in you know February, uh, January, February, uh, 2020, we were getting all these reports of this new lung disease, we were getting imaging features, and then we started seeing patients in the UK. And the British Society of Thoracic Imaging, we set up a database to show people what the imaging features of COVID were. And that was a portal that was view viewed by anyone. And what we found was that more and more chest radiologists around the country who were linked with the British Society of Thoracic Imaging were asking how they could help and how they could contribute. And at the same time, NHSX, the digital arm of the NHS, got in touch with us and said they would really like to create a national repository of COVID imaging to allow computer analysis to improve the care of patients in the UK with COVID, be that you know, predicting ITU need, predicting who's going to have long COVID, those kinds of questions. So we then tried setting up a huge national database, which is not easy in the midst of a pandemic. And it's the kind of thing the NHS has wanted to do for a long time, but has struggled to do. But, you know, the situation demanded uh, the resources to be put to it. So I mean, like with so many things at this time, it, it, it's taken this catastrophe to realign and perhaps underline where initiatives like something as this national database can have such huge value. Absolutely, absolutely. And what I would hope is that the lessons learned and the value of this initiative 
continue into the future so that there are other applications, other diseases where for once imaging can be collated. You know, we it's easy to collect pseudonymized clinical data together for analysis, but imaging has always been held back. And what I hope is that going forward, we can then collect national or, you know, even at least regional repositories of disease that are kind of neglected or we find hard to get in large enough numbers. The challenge there again is that the imaging on its own is not valuable. The imaging has to be linked to the clinical information to be able to predict things like disease progression, disease severity. So they're complex databases and they need a lot of work to put together, but they could be so useful for discovery. So I think NCCID, which is the National COVID-19 database, has been really useful in streamlining what we want to achieve in the future for other kinds of databases. So we're recording this at the end of April 2021. And in the news recently was the link between the one of the vaccines and um, a form of heparin induced thrombocytopenia and clot formation. And I was reading an interesting article in The Guardian about the, um, the clinician that decided to run the tests for the, the um, antibodies that detected that. And, and then came up with the fact that this was a very similar, probably cross-linked condition. And it's just amazing to me that we've got virologists, we've got epidemiologists, infectious disease specialists. We're all, paying, we're all trying to focus so hard on all this information that's coming to us. And, and just for sometimes it just can be a, a, a moment of genius or a moment of change of focus that discovers something really quite remarkable. And given that your experience um, with, um, I presume, machine learning and computer analysis and these kinds of techniques. Do you think that they're able, these techniques are able to look at data in the same way and have epiphany moments in the same way as humans? So with the human involved, absolutely. So I'm very fortunate. I work in a department called the Center for Medical Image Computing. This is a department in computer science at UCL which has about 200 postdocs and PhD students who are all just computer scientists. And their reason for working is to analyze medical imaging. So it's kind of nirvana for me. And what's fascinating is the different postdocs and PhD students, they're all working on different organs, different diseases, different imaging modalities. And what you realize is as a clinician, we become very, very focused in our view. So when I look at a CT scan, all I'm interested in is lung disease. I don't even look at the heart, which is in the center of that CT. <laughs> I don't interpret you're gonna get the heart. You're gonna get in trouble if you do that. You're, well, not talking about, you're not talking about clinical reporting though, are you? No, I'm saying <laughs> in a patient who's had a high res CT, there is valuable information in that CT that's related to the heart. I don't know how to interpret that really. I look at the lungs. And similarly with respiratory clinicians, they're interested in the lungs, they're not interested in the heart's side. You're missing, you're missing it all. You should be looking at the joints and the spine. You're making <laughs> a huge mistake. Well, you know, that is that is very true. We're finding in COPD, you know, the uh, bone density, muscle mass, they're mm. strong predictors of outcome. Yep. But what I find fascinating is that we are all pigeonholed or very subspecialized in our view. And the computer scientists are very disease agnostic. And they will develop models that work on MR of the prostate, but those models are transferable to imaging the lungs or analyzing the lungs. The same techniques can. So that's where you're getting eureka moment. For example, there are yeah. some data science techniques developed on Alzheimer's disease 
that are showing real value in determining different subgroups of patients with lung disease. I think, I think it's it's amazing how some of these analysis technologies are so robust in different environments, and we must come up with ways, as you say, of re-implementing and not reinventing um, these kinds of approaches to um, imaging analysis, because there's so much good stuff out there. Absolutely, absolutely, and there are. It means that you think of the disease in a different way. It gives you the opportunity, maybe, to find those eureka moments because you're way of analyzing that data suddenly changes because it's been applied to a completely different disease with a different imaging modality you're learning a lot more and we we can sometimes be in danger of being stuck in our own little thoughts that we've been trained to think of and not think in new directions Okay, Joe, so you talked about some amazing travel that you've undertaken through through the world um, at different stages in your career. One thing I was really interested about was that I assume that these projects through Médecins Sans Frontières and also when you had out of programming experience in India at the start of your training, they weren't imaging related projects, were they? Could you tell us a little bit more about them? Yeah, I can tell you them. I mean, that was the first project in Darfur in Sudan. I mean, it was a real baptism of fire. The first day I was there, you basically have a week handover. Uh, they're called missions. You have a week handover at the start of your mission. So there was a German doctor called Nick who I was taking over from, and he showed me around the hospital. And then we went outside the hospital for a chat, and there were these trees outside the hospital. The hospital's on a corner. And there are these two women that used to make tea and serve it to all these old men who used to sit outside on these little stools in the open air. And we sat with them and we were just drinking some tea, and what we saw, and I'll describe this to you, and maybe it gives you an indication of <laughs> what that place was like. The hospital was on a corner. There were lots of soldiers on a truck driving like maniacs. There were about, a, a truck is more like a, a pickup truck with the back cut off, right? So there's about 20 soldiers all kind of holding onto the doors, standing on the back. The two soldiers standing on the side holding on to the drivers and the passenger seats doors had rocket propelled grenades over their shoulders and in the town they often drove like crazy so a lot of them would be uh, injured in road traffic accidents uh, let alone fighting and they're driving down the path and then we're in the corner at the corner of the hospital and we can see on the other path this donkey cart coming and there's going to be an accident. We can see it. So me and Nick jump up, try and tell these soldiers to stop because they can't see the donkey cart coming, but they don't stop. And then at the last minute, they see the donkey cart. They break. Everyone goes flying off the truck. Me and Nick hit the ground with our hands over our heads because we're waiting for these rocket-propelled grenades to go off. After a few seconds, there's nothing. So we slowly get up, look around, the soldiers are laughing, dusting themselves off, getting back onto their truck. We are breathing, like hyperventilating. We get back onto our stools, look around. And the old men that are there every day doing, drinking tea haven't moved. They just <laughs> sat there watching the whole thing, looked at us and just said, shook their heads and said, Kawajas, which means like foreigners. And to them, this was just a normal occurrence. And it was that point that I just thought, oh my God, where am I? This is something completely unfamiliar to me. And I mean, it was incredible. So Nick, he was supposed to leave 
and he couldn't because the helicopter, that was the only way you could get to that place. The helicopter couldn't land. So he was there a few more days. Finally, he left. The day he left, we then had the gunshot wound patients coming from local fighting. And we have 59 gunshot wound patients come in over the course of three days, all at night. So the first night we went to the hospital, there's no electricity. We're trying to triage patients with head torches. And you know, after three days, none of the 59 patients had died. And we were walking around thinking, you know, we are it. How amazing are we? Everyone survived. No one's better than us. It was only later I found out that actually the soldiers are so experienced at fighting that when the sun goes down and they can't fight anymore, they then go onto the battlefield and they do their own triage and they take their patients that they think will make it to the hospital. So actually it was a soldier's triage that was actually, you mm. know, the deciding factor there maybe, but it was an unbelievable experience. It changed me uh, massively. And coming back, you do feel very dislocated to the world, but it's something that stayed with me. Talking about imaging, you know, in that time, I was there for eight months, I saw two x-rays. And there were people that had x-rays done in the capital and somehow come all the way to Darfur. And of course, when someone comes into hospital holding an x-ray, the entire hospital staff are so excited. They're all grabbing it. They're all trying to place that x-ray on the person's body to try and work out what limb has been imaged and by the time you get it it's so covered in thumbprints you can't really interpret it anymore but that was you know that was all i saw so doing that kind of work and then coming back into radiology you kind of think wow i was working somewhere where you couldn't even you know you couldn't check a hemoglobin you had to get the uh, a film of blood and compare it to a color chart which had a plus or minus range of four mm. units of hemoglobin it was very basic. And then you're coming to the most technological part of the hospital with radiology. It's a very dissociative. It is, isn't it? I mean, yeah. what an amazing story of sort of acclimatization one way and then landing back in the sort of the developed world and just seeing how different it is. And I think this is a challenge for imaging and imaging research is there's such a huge divide between developing and developed world. And I know that we've had people on the podcast, for example, that have specifically looked at developing um, ultrasound techniques, the, um, Susie Shelmadine, ultrasound techniques and post-mortem analysis, because those machines are available um, in developing countries. And that's something that then can be more, um, more widely spread out. It's also worth mentioning, I think the Royal College of Radiologists has some awards, the name escapes me right now, apologies, um, for uh, imaging and radiologists to engage with projects in the developing world. So absolutely lots, lots of opportunity. So it's not like it's a dead end. Um, there's still a lot of impact that Im imaging can have in, in these in these environments. Absolutely. I mean, I was very fortunate in my time at King's. I got sent to South Sudan, uh, as it was at the time, to uh, help train some people to look at uh, cysts in the liver. So echinococcus uh cysts in the liver and the bladder so i trained some people to do these ultrasound scans and then they went to the field to do them and then i mean this was i don't know maybe almost 10 years ago even then the portable ultrasounds were such good quality that you could train someone quite well just to look at some very specific things and send them into the field with a handheld or you know a big laptop version of an ultrasound machine and there are other opportunities you know so msf they have now got a radiological service, a teleradiology service, where patients or doctors in the field 
where there is the availability to do x-rays and though there are TB projects, there are trauma projects, so x-rays are available. If they want an expert's opinion on that x-ray, they can take an image of that, upload it to the MSF teleradiology portal, and then there are teleradiologists around the world who will help interpret those images and give the clinician in the field a report. So I used to do that for quite a long time. And it's a nice way to keep your hand in and feel that you're still contributing to that world, even if you've left it behind on a day-to-day -day basis. So, of course, where are you going to be heading next then and when? Aha. Uh -huh. So, I mean, that kind of work is, I think, of a time in your life where maybe you don't have responsibilities and you have adventure in your blood. Uh, I'm married. I have a child. And so those days are probably long gone. <laughs> so I love the idea of adventure in your blood. I can just now imagine you holding a sample up to the light and then putting it in a colour chart just to see how much adventure there is in your blood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think I mean, I would recommend everyone to do that kind of work, to be honest. I think even, I, I know radiology can be one step removed from clinical medicine and you may not feel comfortable with tropical medicine, but if you... Well, you've just demonstrated exactly how it can be done. And I think educationally with what is available and, you know, is really a, a, a good model for doing that. My, my, uh, my wife is a microbiologist and trained in ID as well. We always thought about, before children came along, how we could go places um, together. But of course, there was this disparity between developing and developed world. But there must be a way that we can take an technology and I mean, even from an infectious diseases, you, you talked about echinococcus, you know, combining infectious diseases with imaging is not something that's, you know, widespread across the UK. But if you're willing to take a few steps out of your comfort zone, those opportunities are going to be out there worldwide. Absolutely. And, you know, we think we all we talk a lot about the lack of radiologists in the UK and the workforce shortfall. But there is a massively reduced number of radiologists in the developing world. And the fact is that a lot of chest x-rays will be interpreted by someone that's not a doctor. So there is a huge training need and training opportunity there. If you have the ambition, you can link to a hospital in the developing world and train not necessarily even their doctors, but their physician assistants to understand how to interpret those chest x-rays, you know, what signs may give them TB, you know, may point to TB so that a patient doesn't have unnecessary treatment, for example. So there is a massive need and it doesn't have to be something novel. It can just be teaching the fundamentals to people, which has much more value in a way because they're using it every day at scale. So I, th I think there is a massive, massive role to play that's probably underplayed by us in promoting radiology in that kind of environment. You've already touched a little bit on where you are in life and the fact that you know, it's hard to perhaps send yourself away for six months at a time. Um, but so how do you then think about balancing your personal academic life? So I, I think it is very difficult. I think that's one of the big drawbacks of academia. There is a huge pressure to produce because you're constantly looking for your next fellowship or a you know, final post or improving the quality of your papers. So research never stops. A clinical job is nine to five and then potentially you could switch off. I think the danger with academia is that there is no end in sight. So you have to be very strict. And over time, I've become stricter. So the weekends are kind of now sacred in a way. They're not work free, but the work happens at a time where no one else needs you almost. 
And then you have to be very organized during the week. But having said that, you know, I was trying to be as organized as that. And then COVID came and then that just changes everything, right? And working from home, which is what I do for a lot of my academic work, also blurs those boundaries. So I think I'm not a very good person to speak to the separation of work <laughs> and social life, but I think it is incredibly important. And I see, you know, even in my colleagues, right, there is burnout, there is stress, there is anxiety, there is frustration at all the conditions we're working under now. So we have to be kind to ourselves and just look out for each other, I guess. And so, you know, maybe finding times in the day, what me and my wife do now during, during the course of the day, we both go for a walk together, like two 80 year olds, not that I'm trying to be ageist, but this is what we see ourselves doing when we're yes. long retired, but we're doing it now just because particularly with the weather as it is now. And just for reference, it's actually quite a nice sunny day today yes. uh, in case it's not when you listen to the podcast. <laughs> Uh, you know, those kinds of things are really important to, uh, you know, walk around, smell the roses and enjoy the day that you have. Yeah, I think I must be traveling through some pretty similar life experiences because I've come to those kind of boundaries, the boundary decisions and saying, you know, you have to carve out that time for your family, for yourself. Um, I think part of it is getting older and not being able to, you know, run that engine so raggedly. You've got to have a bit of recovery time. It's so important. Um, yeah and i think you also need a fresh mind you know if you're trying to think of new things to do you can't be exhausted because your brain is just going to be foggy you need to have the moments where you switch off those are the times where maybe insights come to you and it's so easy to be constantly checking your phone you know there were times where my daughter would be like put your phone down and you think <laughs> did i really need her to tell me to put my phone down maybe i should just switch off it's these are the challenges of the 21st century you know lifestyle right so, so what do you do to switch off i run a bit i spend some time in the evenings watching something with my wife just all very mundane things really i used to do a lot of photography now i don't do the photography but i work on improving the pictures that i've taken like years ago so things that are kind of distracting but uh i guess still family orientated i think that's there's a limit to what I can do with that free time. So you try and make sure it's as much with your family as you can, I think. So looking back 10 years, how is your current situation different to what you imagined back then? Right, so we're talking 2011. I yeah. think I just come back from my year in India and I was getting back into radiology. I knew I wanted to be an academic, but it was almost like you just couldn't see the path. And so there was a lot of frustration there in knowing from a career point of view, what I wanted to head off in. I also probably wasn't clear that I wanted to be a chest radiologist at that point, but it's just weird how life points you in these directions you think you have such control over your life but it's sometimes a little coincidence moments that determine such important things i had a consultant at king's who every year said to me you're going to be a chest radiologist you're going to be a chest radiologist <laughs> and after four years i had to decide and all i had in his head was you're going to be a chest radiologist so i did chest radiology well, that and, worked you know, well it changed everything i mean but we think we control everything actually life controls us i think a lot so 10 years ago, I was probably from a career point of view, quite frustrated and a bit torn between 
what I want to do with MSF and what I want to do in the UK. So I think I'm in a much happier place uh, and much more stable. And yeah, I don't know. Um, it all worked out, I think, for the end. I, I think it always does work out in the end. To the trainees who may be frustrated, don't get too stressed. These things work out as they should. I think your career will follow the path it's supposed to take. And you can see the good sides in every outcome you end up with. All right, then let's fast forward to 10 years time. Oh, that's harder. So, yeah, it's uh, different, isn't it? Because looking back, you can say, oh, it'll be all right, it'll be fine. And then you'll yeah. be sitting there sweating and say, oh, no, I really need this grant or I really need that position. <laughs> yeah, this is hypocrisy in action. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Again, thinking that it'll all work out. What I would see in 10 years time is that I have an academic group at UCL that are dedicated to analyzing lung CT imaging, and we're then doing multi-morbidity work and getting a constant stream of radiology trainees coming to us for a year, embedding our knowledge with them so that they can then set up their own groups. I think it's having that mentorship, which is difficult these days because everyone's so busy, but having that mentorship for research, which means that they'll always be linked to you. So they can always come to you for support, yet they can also have their own independent interests. And from an, yeah, from an, a career point of view, it would be as an academic institutional lead, running my own programs, looking at different types of lung disease and increasing our collaborations around the world. You know, I work with 10 different uh, countries in the world at the moment. It's getting more of those people involved or more people involved in that kind of work so that the data sets are more generalizable yeah. And our insights are more robust. I think that's how I'd like to see things. How awesome that would also be able to try and combine something like, you know, with that passion of travel that you've had um, with a stream for um, research education in lung disease for the developing world and having streams of people coming through your centre, something like that as well as, an, as a sort of Wellcome Trust funded parallel stream. Yeah, so I think this is, again, something that needs to be done. Finding the funding streams to allow these things to happen, even if it's PhD students funded within the UK that are radiologists, or even one better, getting people from abroad coming to you for a year where you can offer them maybe the funding or the security of a job and getting their insights. Because I think the more people we have working together, the more valuable uh, the work. Well, look, you've almost managed to convince me to be a chest radiologist. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, it's great. It's been really fantastic to talk to you, Joe. So that's all we do have time for this special episode. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much, Tom. It's been really, really nice. So look, thanks ever so much, Joe. We wish you all the best of luck with the 2021 Röntgen Professorship and beyond. And I'm sure you'll um, have a huge amount of fun and it'll be extremely rewarding for everyone that uh, gets to meet you. As we wrap up, huge thanks as always. Go out to Charlotte McKeown at the Royal College of Radiologist Events team and at the college itself for supporting this podcast. And of course, thanks to Sue Mercer for her invaluable sound editing. As usual, show notes will be available at the RCL website. And if you have any questions about what we have discussed today or any other matters related to academic radiology, then you can email them to conf at rcr.ac.uk. That's C-O-N-F at rcr.ac.uk. As always, don't forget about Radiant, the radiology academic network for trainees, which continues to go from strength to strength. And you can check them out at www.radiantuk.com and get your training scheme involved. If you've enjoyed your crash experience, tell your friends and colleagues, give us a thumbs up and subscribe. I've been your host, Tom Termazai. Until next time, stay safe.